welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Graham Parsons. I also wanted to acknowledge the passing of a central figure in a recent podcast about the quiz show scandals of the 50s. Herbert Stemple, one of the major participants in the rigging of the television show 21 and later portrayed by John Turturro in the Robert Redford film Quiz Show, died on April 7th, 2020 in New York City, New York, aged 93. And finally, as I've mentioned before, we are inching ever closer to the release of a novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Let's get started with our story about Graham Parsons. In the early morning hours of September 18, 1973, a man by the name of Phil Kaufman received an urgent phone call. Kaufman worked in the music business as a road manager, a kind of jack-of-all-trades who was mostly responsible for ensuring that whatever act he was working for showed up on time and sober enough to perform. Based in Los Angeles, Kaufman worked with many high-profile rock acts, including Frank Zappa, Joe Cocker, and the Rolling Stones. An ex-con who did time with Charlie Manson at Terminal Island, he had a reputation as a no-nonsense fixer, able to extricate his clients from occasionally sticky situations, legal and otherwise. So, it was not surprising that in an emergency, the caller would turn to Kaufman for help. One of the bands Kaufman worked closely with was the Flying Burrito Brothers, a critically successful but commercially obscure group led by Chris Hillman and Graham Parsons. In 1970, Parsons was kicked out of the Burrito Brothers, and when he launched a solo career, he was an immediate addition to Kaufman's client list. By mid-September 1973, he had just finished recording his second solo album and subsequently headed to a favorite spot, Joshua Tree, California. Back in L.A., Kaufman was assembling the singer's upcoming tour as Parsons, accompanied by his girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, a roadie named Michael Martin, and his girlfriend, Dale McElroy, booked a couple of rooms at the Joshua Tree Inn Motel and spent most of September 18th partying in local bars. Parsons had a penchant for heroin, and in a nearby roadhouse, he ran into a female acquaintance, who provided his entourage with plenty of a morphine-based substance. By nightfall, having returned to the motel, Parsons and Fisher ingested the substance intravenously, with Parsons recklessly chasing these injections with tequila. Michael Martin had returned to Los Angeles to replenish the group's marijuana supply, 
and Dale McElroy, recovering from hepatitis and adverse to her companion's hardcore behavior, returned to her own room alone. Only hours later, Margaret Fisher began frantically pounding on her door, telling Dale that Parsons had overdosed and she needed help. Clearly, no stranger to this type of situation, Fisher quickly located some ice, returned to their room, and employed several cubes as a suppository. Dale McElroy was astonished when, in just a matter of minutes, Parsons not only regained consciousness, he was jokingly asking them why they had pulled his pants off. When the singer assured both women that he was okay, Margaret Fisher decided that it might be a good idea to get everybody some food. Dale McElroy remained with Parsons, who seemed to merely fall asleep on the room's bed. Unfortunately, his breathing eventually became strained, and by the time his girlfriend returned, Dale was attempting to administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to little effect. An ambulance was finally called, which transported Parsons to the nearest hospital in Yucca Valley. By 12.15 a.m., the time he arrived, only emergency attempts to revive him with adrenaline and defibrillation were implemented, all unsuccessful. Graham Parsons was pronounced dead at 12.30 a.m. While police interrogated an obviously intoxicated Margaret Fisher, it was then that Dale McElroy was able to call Phil Kaufman. Although the sheriff's department still wanted to question the two women, based on the hour and Kaufman's assurances via telephone that he would deliver them promptly on Wednesday, Fisher and McElroy were permitted to head back to the Joshua Tree Inn. When Kaufman arrived a few hours later, dropped off by his girlfriend, he took Parsons' stash that the women had already secreted, disposed of it in the desert, and then contacted the sheriff's department, explaining that he would deliver Fisher and McElroy momentarily. Instead, he loaded the two women into Graham Parsons' Jaguar and promptly fled back to Los Angeles and out of the jurisdiction of San Bernardino County. Upon arrival, he advised the two to lay low, but the advice was unnecessary. No attempt was ever made to pursue a further investigation. While the two distraught women tried to forget this terrible experience, Kaufman began to obsess over an incident that occurred only months earlier. In July of 1973, at the funeral of another musician, acclaimed Sessions guitarist Clarence White, Parsons was extremely depressed by the lengthy traditional rites and made a deal with Kaufman that if one of them died, the other would take the body to Joshua Tree, memorialize it over a few beers, and then burn it leaving the ashes to scatter in the desert. Kaufman was ultimately prompted to fulfill his end of the bargain when he heard that Graham Parsons was to be flown to New Orleans for a burial orchestrated by his stepfather. Knowing that Parsons had no connection to the city and was not fond of this particular relative, the road manager hatched an outlandish plan to intervene. After determining that Grand Parsons' remains would arrive at the Continental Airlines freight hangar at LAX sometime late Thursday afternoon, he recruited Michael Martin, as well as the beaten-up old hearse that Dale McElroy owned and used for camping trips. Eschewing business attire because the two men believed that it made them look, quote, ridiculous, they donned cowboy boots, hats, and tour jackets, stocked the hearse with ample supplies of Jack Daniels and beer, and headed to the airport. Their 10 p.m. arrival coincided with the delivery of Parsons' casket, trucked in by a mortuary located in Joshua Tree. 
Somehow, Kaufman, who had been drinking all day, convinced the Continental employee that there had been a change of plans. The family did not want the casket to be unaccompanied, and a charter jet was to fly it, transported by the two men, from Van Nuys Airport back to New Orleans. Most likely, the employee was not the most diligent of individuals. After agreeing to release the coffin, he did not even take notice that Kaufman signed the various receipts with the signature, Jeremy Nobody. But Kaufman and Martin were not out of the woods yet. While Kaufman was bamboozling the freight employee, a policeman had inadvertently parked his car in the doorway of the hangar. Kaufman loudly emerged and not only asked the cop to move, he also convinced him to help load the coffin onto a gurney and into the liquor-stocked hearse. Martin, also quite intoxicated, almost sabotaged the mission by scraping the hearse on the side of the expansive hangar doorway on the way out. For whatever reason, the policeman merely rolled his eyes and drove off. The two men waited until they were well on their way to Joshua Tree before buying five gallons of gasoline. At approximately 1 a.m., they entered Joshua Tree National Monument and headed for one of its central landmarks, Cap Rock. There they stopped, Kaufman and Martin, having continued to imbibe all the way to Joshua Tree, unable to go any further. Martin was especially nervous and quickly attempted to extricate the coffin from the back of the hearse, dropping it in the process. Kaufman was more deliberate, opening the casket, the hinges eerily groaning in the darkness. Graham Parsons was naked, save for the autopsy tape, cosmetically masking incisions undertaken during that process. Kaufman methodically poured the five gallons of gasoline into the casket, stood back, lit a match, and tossed it into the coffin's interior. A spectacular fireball ensued, and after briefly watching as Parsons' body hissed and burned and ashes rose into the night sky, Kaufman and Martin detected what they thought were headlights approaching the inferno and rapidly fled the scene. In fact, park rangers did not become aware of the conflagration until early morning hikers reported it. Despite a subsequent fender bender on the freeway that did manage to attract the attention of law enforcement, the two body snatchers managed to escape back to Los Angeles, for the moment, undetected. Fifty years after his death, Graham Parsons has achieved respect as an influence on many prominent musicians and is perceived as musically way ahead of his time. But in the immediate aftermath of his demise, there was more focus on the bizarre incident at Joshua Tree than on Parsons himself. Most accounts barely describe the specifics of his career, with some merely mentioning that he had written some Rolling Stones songs. Some accurately mention his tenure with the Birds, but even the New York Times inaccurately describes the band as one of the top British rock groups of the 1960s. Predictably, someone this musically and personally unique came from a background that was singularly unusual. Ingram Cecil Connor III, a.k.a. Graham Parsons, was born in Winter Haven, Florida, on November 5, 1946. His father, Ingram Cecil Connor Jr., was a World War II Army Air Corps pilot and heavily decorated major whose active service in the South Pacific was cut short when he came down with malaria. Sent to an airfield in central Florida in 1944, the charismatic pilot, now sporting the nickname Coon Dog, met a young woman from nearby Winter Haven. The woman's name was Ava Snively, 
and she not only was attractive, she was the daughter of one of the wealthiest and socially prominent entrepreneurs in Central Florida. Her father, John Snively, started out as a real estate developer in the 20s, but eventually took advantage of the boom and bust nature of orange production to buy up most of the groves in the Winter Haven area. He also branched out into the orange packing business just as orange juice concentrate was originated, a product that caused an explosion in the demand for the fruit. After a year-long courtship, Connor and Ava Snively were married in March of 1945, when the Snively business empire was reaching its peak. Although the groom's family were upper-class southern gentry, they weren't in John Snively's league. The wedding took place at the Snively Mansion, the two-story brick Georgian edifice overlooking the family's private lake. John Snively wielded unquestioned authority over his business interests, and even before his son-in-law emerged from the service, Coondog was designated as the president of the Snively Box Plant in Waycross, Georgia. All of those oranges needed economical packaging, and the limitless Georgia pine and cheap labor in a small remote location was the perfect business solution. For Connor, the good news was that the plant virtually ran itself, and the job was actually a well-paid sinecure. The bad news was that he was in Waycross, Georgia, in the middle of pine forests and the Okefenokee Swamp. Winterhaven, especially if you were a member of the Snively clan, was paradise by comparison. The couple tried to make the best of it, building a brand new home in a subdivision where, unfortunately, most of the roads were still unpaved. There was another aspect of Coon Dog Connor's demeanor that John Snively may have recognized. Connor had the reputation in the service as a hellraiser and a heavy drinker, the Snivelys themselves were unusual in that they openly served alcohol at their social functions, but Coondog, as well as his wife, had a reputation for enjoying an especially good time. Their fully stocked bar in a Southern Baptist location like Waycross was borderline scandalous. Although he managed to show up at the box plant for a few hours each day, Coondog spent much of his time partying, hunting, and driving his Thunderbird around town. Another more experienced employee actually managed the day-to-day -day operation of the factory, which turned out 8,000 wooden crates daily. Although Connor was well-liked and gregarious, his wife Avis never made much of an effort within the community. Considering herself practically royalty compared to most of the town's inhabitants, she gained a reputation as confrontational and aloof. The birth of her son was indicative of her mentality. Avis insisting on going back to Winter Haven to have the child in the company of her family. Eventually, she spent her time shuttling back and forth between the two locations, Coondog remaining in Waycross, ostensibly to take care of business. Five years after Graham was born, his mother gave birth to his sister, also named Avis. Coondog was more attached to his son, and little Avis naturally bonded with her mother. Mr. Connor headed the local Cub Scout troop and taught his son how to hunt. Unlike the other Snively children who were spoiled rich kids, both Graham and his sister remained reasonably well-behaved. They grew up in comfortable surroundings and led normal lives, attending the local elementary school. The only connection to Snively grandeur, summertime stays at the Winter Haven estate. Most likely the most notable experience of Graham Parsons' childhood was seeing Elvis Presley perform at a local auditorium. From then on, his main focus became music, specifically rock and roll, and because he was already taking formal piano lessons, he was able to play anything he heard on the radio.
John Snively Sr. died in January of 1958, age 71. A heavy drinker himself, he was fearful for the future of his company, believing his profligate children were too undisciplined to perpetuate his success. Additionally, beneath the seeming domestic tranquility in the Connor household, there were profound issues under the surface. Coondog felt utterly worthless professionally. Any suggestions conveyed to headquarters in Winterhaven ignored by the hierarchy there. Both he and his wife abused alcohol heavily, Avis also getting involved with barbiturates. At age 10, Graham was sent to a local military academy, most likely to shield him from what was a tense and dysfunctional household. Just how tense became evident a few days before Christmas in 1958. Typically, Avis brought her children to Winterhaven when school let out, Coondog following a few days before the holiday itself. Instead, this year, Ingram Cecil Connor, Jr., waited until December 23rd, but instead of heading south to join his family, he took a 38 caliber pistol and shot himself through the temple. Predictably, snively influence was brought to bear on the official inquest concerning Ingram Connor's death, ultimately ruled as accidental, occurring while Coondog was cleaning his pistol. Avis Connor immediately decided to relocate to Winterhaven and brought her children to live in the Snively mansion with her brother's family. Clearly affected by their father's death, which was never discussed after they were told, Graham and his sister became isolated and withdrawn in an environment that was utterly different than their previously ordinary lifestyle. Clearly, their mother couldn't cope either. Within nine months, she married Robert Parsons, allegedly a business entrepreneur involved in the Cuban citrus industry. One of the Snivelys met Bob Parsons while considering a deal to invest in a Cuban processing operation. That deal fell through, but Bob got an invitation to Winterhaven to perhaps manage one of the Snivelys' Florida operations. Eight months after meeting Avis, the two were married in a private ceremony that the family did not approve of and would have probably tried to prevent. Utterly charming, impeccably dressed, and completely devoted to Avis, Robert Parsons had a fatal flaw in the eyes of the Snively clan. Although he talked a good game, he spent part of his childhood with his family in a New Orleans public housing project, and after their marriage, Avis had to underwrite an upgrade of his wardrobe. Robert Parsons literally couldn't afford the clothes on his back. He was the type of fortune hunter that old man Snively perpetually warned his children about, and very quickly the entire clan became quite hostile. Despite this antipathy, Bob Parsons went out of his way to ingratiate himself with Avis's children, formally adopting them shortly after the marriage, despite two children of his own from a previous union. This was how Graham Connor became Graham Parsons. Avis and Bob also quickly bought their own modest, by Snively standards, home in a nice Winterhaven neighborhood. And to encourage Graham to pursue his interest in music, they allowed him a remote room in a former maid's quarters that enabled him to make noise at all hours of the day and night. With a separate entrance, bathroom, small refrigerator, and television, the teenager could come and go as he pleased. His father was absent most of the time, pursuing all sorts of business deals, including cement factories in Colombia and construction projects in Mexico, and Avis lodged in another corner of the house, drinking by herself. Graham was left to his own devices, albeit happily. For all of their condescension, the Snively heirs were probably even more irresponsible than Bob and Avis Parsons. 
Avis's brother, John Snively Jr., ostensibly the new patriarch and decision-maker operating the family business, spent most of his time and a great deal of money on show ponies that he displayed competitively all over the country. Avis, probably egged on by Bob Parsons, eventually successfully sued her two siblings to break up the complicated trust that encumbered family interests. This occurred just as a downturn in the Florida citrus industry occurred, and with all of the interested parties wanting hard currency, assets were liquidated at rock-bottom prices. When the smoke cleared, Avis walked away with $2.5 million in cash, approximately $23 million today, but vastly less than what the value of the Snively fortune had been worth in better times. However, one aspect of this process that greatly affected the rest of Graham Parsons' life and musical career was that trusts were established for all of the next generation of Snively children, including Graham. In 1961, Bob and Avis Parsons had their own child, a daughter, Diane. Unfortunately, by now, Avis was a full-blown alcoholic, and the marriage was a liquor-soaked disaster. When he was present, which wasn't often, Parsons indulged his stepson with a brand new sports car and numerous guitars. As his mother became more irrational and difficult, Graham got along better with his stepfather. Although quite intelligent, school was an afterthought, and the teenager's real passion was music. He spent much of this time period either performing solo or within one of the Winter Haven area's 60s garage bands that emulated the folk and folk rock acts of the era. Graham was so devoted to music that he managed to flunk 11th grade at the local less-than-challenging high school. This galvanized both parents who decided that private school was the solution to getting Graham to focus on academics. Ironically, he was sent to the Bowles School, the former military academy where he spent sixth grade. The school had shifted to a prep school environment and was not as stifling as was previously the case. Enrolling as a junior and a year older, he stuck out as more sophisticated, intelligent, and was already sporting stylishly long hair. He also made enough of an impression on the faculty that several of his teachers and members of the administration wrote letters of recommendation to the only university that Graham applied to, Harvard. He was accepted in early 1965. Having a son accepted to Harvard usually was a remarkable event in any household. But the elder Parsons' domestic situation was now teetering on collapse. It was a relatively open secret that Bob Parsons had seduced the nanny named Bonnie Muma, hired after the birth of his daughter. Attempting to keep the affair as discreet as possible, Parsons installed this girl, only five years older than his son, in an apartment in West Palm Beach. Bonnie was ostensibly attending a local college, but her interaction with Graham's stepfather was the main focus of her life. His wife eventually became aware of the situation, which led to both an escalation in conflict and her drinking, which by now was nonstop. In the spring of 1965, she was rumored to be on the verge of filing for a divorce. Instead, she was admitted to a Winter Haven hospital, where she died on June 5, 1965, the day Graham Parsons was scheduled to graduate. Some of Graham's classmates would recall that shortly after he received his diploma, he was seen in very serious discussion with members of his family and then abruptly left the ceremony. Avis Parsons' cause of death was officially listed as cirrhosis of the liver, and after her funeral, Graham left Winterhaven intent on spending a summer in New York City before enrolling at Harvard. 
Eager to leave the bad memories of his childhood behind, Parsons was also intent on aggressively pursuing a music career, and New York's Greenwich Village was the epicenter of the folk rock phenomenon that was sweeping the U.S. By now, Graham had access to his trust fund, allowing him to rent an apartment on Bleecker Street. While he certainly enjoyed himself, he wasn't there long enough to gain any headway musically, and by September, he was headed to Cambridge, his roommate recalling that Graham registered only minutes before the deadline. Although he had some vague ideas about eventually studying within the Divinity School and serious theological analysis, he quickly lost interest. He never attended class, and most of the individuals he encountered wondered why he ever even came to the school. His main focus was on music. He quickly assembled the musicians who comprised his first professional band, the International Submarine Band, and left Harvard after the first semester, renting a house in the Bronx that also served as a rehearsal studio for him and his Cambridge transplants. One of his bandmates, John News, was a devotee of the music of traditional American country, like Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. Graham Parsons quickly immersed himself in this sound, a school of music that rock, folk, and rhythm and blues musicians would sneer at as backwards and the antithesis of cool. Nevertheless, this sound remained the foundation of Parsons' original songwriting. The band spent a great deal of time rehearsing music, and they eventually were able to book some dates in village clubs like the Café Wa and the Night Owl. Another accomplishment of Graham's during this 1966 time period was receiving a 4F designation from a draft board, disqualifying him from service in Vietnam, a certification that he encouraged by appearing under the influence of LSD and acting deliberately odd. Typically, Graham's attention span in New York flickered quickly. He met and befriended actor Brandon DeWild, who starred as a child with Alan Ladd and Shane, and who convinced Parsons that Los Angeles was where he needed to relocate. DeWild was close friends with David Crosby of The Birds, and he abruptly left New York after his career hit a lull. As soon as he got to the West Coast, he informed Graham that he should think about a similar move. Out of curiosity, the singer decided to check out Southern California. Upon his return to New York, he convinced the other band members that they needed to relocate. He was accompanied by Nancy Ross, formerly involved with Steve McQueen and David Crosby. But this was not his only motivation to head west. Except for the occasional warm-up for more established acts ranging anywhere from Freddie Cannon to Phil Oakes, the International Submarine Band was going nowhere. Everyone agreed on the change of location. Graham and Nancy flying back in March of 1967, everybody else following by automobile. Unlike his counterparts, Graham could afford the airfare. The corpus of the Snively Trust provided him with an annual amount of money that, although in dispute, was certainly substantial, and at least $30,000 in 1967 era cash. Although the ISP was initially booked into some high profile shows upon arrival, energy quickly dissipated. For Graham, pursuing a love affair with Nancy Ross and hobnobbing with the likes of Peter Fonda and the Birds put a crimp in his willingness to rigorously rehearse. The band was also fragmenting musically, and eventually the other band members evolved into the first iteration of the Flying Burrito Brothers, a loose collection of musicians that on stage frequently included performers like Leon Russell and saxophonist Bobby Keys. Graham occasionally participated, but by then he was more involved with figuring out his own musical direction. 
he spent a great deal of time playing at the Palomino Club, the legendary country and western bar in the San Fernando Valley. Although the major labels of the record industry passed on the International Submarine Band, Graham came to the attention of Lee Hazelwood, the writer and producer of Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walkin'. Money from that and other huge hits allowed Hazelwood to start his own label, Lee Hazelwood Industries. In mid-1967, Parson and John News agreed to sign with LHI, but the other two band members wanted no part of the second-tier label and were heading away from Graham's country rock style anyway. In July 1967, what was left of the band and some Sessions musicians recorded a few original Parsons compositions with the bulk of the album put together four months later. What was to become Graham Parsons' first record, Safe at Home, officially recorded by the International Submarine Band, but really dominated by Graham, was finished by December of 1967. Half Graham Parsons' original tunes and half covers of country standards, today it is considered a groundbreaking but esoteric cult classic. Something else was going on in Parsons' life that was just as momentous. Nancy Ross had gotten pregnant in the summer of 1967, and while Graham, only 21, knew he did not want to be a father, Nancy had the child, a daughter, Polly, born just as the album was finished. Graham's professional career was just as tumultuous, with Lee Hazelwood having no idea how to promote a band of hippies who recorded country music. An external development sealed the fate of any potential record company push, no matter how modest. For three years, beginning with their 1965 hits, one band, The Birds, dominated the Los Angeles music scene. What original music they produced was usually written by lead vocalist Gene Clark, and the huge royalties generated by his writing credits rankled the other band members, especially David Crosby, whose personality could best be described as toxic. After contributing the single Eight Miles High, Clark quit the band, officially over his fear of flying, but also as a result of increasing tension within the group. Crosby lasted longer, but his egomania and substance abuse resulted in his dismissal in late 1967. The remaining original members, Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman, were initially looking to hire sidemen in drummer Kevin Kelly and Graham Parsons, Graham having the same business manager as Hillman. That Parsons was contractually entangled with Lee Hazelwood actually worked for the pre-existing birds, as Graham could only remain on salary and not demand to be included as a full-fledged member of the band, important as the birds renewed a seven-year contract with Columbia Records in February 1968. That also worked for Graham. He didn't necessarily need the money, and the birds were the quantum leap he felt he needed to propel himself to the heights of the music world. Parsons' subsequent exit from the International Submarine Band underlined both his self-absorption and complete lack of any business acumen. In February 1968, he met with Lee Hazelwood to inform him that he was joining the Birds. Hazelwood, a hardened veteran of the music business, reminded him that he had a signed contract and that Graham would have to part with any royalties from Safe at Home, as well as the ISB name. Parsons' decision to leave doomed any potential publicity push, so royalties were not much of an issue. But the other band members were now unable to even tour and play their own album without Hazelwood giving permission, an unlikely occurrence. Graham didn't care. He was off to bigger and better things. Eventually, he would care, 
but that was down what was now a much brighter road. Hired as a side musician, Graham Parsons' influence on the birds was immediate. Roger McGuinn initially had grandiose plans for a concept album touching all of the chronological bases of country music, ranging from pre-bluegrass to electronic, a nebulous concept he quickly gave up on. Like Graham Parsons, Chris Hillman was also an unabashed devotee of traditional country music, and the album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, headed in that direction. For McGuinn, this was a radical departure, and he wasn't convinced that this move made sense. But the band was under tight deadlines, and in March, they headed for Nashville, so determined to fit in and produce something authentic that they actually cut their hair. This iteration of the Birds did record the foundation of one of the band's most memorable efforts that included Hickory Wind, Graham Parsons' best single to date, and the Birds became the first rock band to ever play the Grand Old Opry. But the general reception was cool, even hostile. Everyone was relieved to get out of town and head for a college tour of the East Coast before returning to L.A. to finish the album. A subtle tug of war was now playing out between Roger McGuinn and Graham and Chris Hillman. The latter were intent on heading full tilt in a country direction. McGuinn wanted the focus on past hits that centered on him as the leader of the band. In the midst of this underlying conflict, the birds set off on a spring European tour, Paris, Rome, and fatefully London. Following the London appearance, the bands mingled with the Rolling Stones who were in attendance. The evening turned into an LSD all-nighter and a trip in the Stones' Rolls-Royce to Stonehenge. Graham hit it off especially well with Keith Richards, both socially and musically. Parsons had a deep and legitimate knowledge of country music, a genre that fascinated Richards, and he was eager to trade ideas with someone as enthusiastic as he was. That Graham could keep up with Keith's voracious intake of narcotics and alcohol developed into a strong but ultimately destructive connection. The band and Graham returned to L.A. and less glamorous challenges. It was explained to Graham that Columbia was insisting that his voice be erased from many of the songs from the yet to be released Sweetheart of the Rodeo because Lee Hazelwood was threatening a lawsuit. In truth, this was Roger McGuinn's attempt to underline his control of the band and its direction. It certainly increased the tension within the birds and resulted in an inevitable outcome that began with a typically bizarre preamble. In June of 1968, Graham traveled with Nancy Ross and his six-month-old daughter to New Orleans, ostensibly to drop off Polly with his stepfather, who was now married to the former nanny. Without a bankroll, Bob Parsons was forced to return to a corporate position at the Bechtel Corporation. While he made a good living, he continued to live way beyond his means, buying an opulent home and throwing weekly pool parties. Graham and Nancy were supposed to embark on a cruise, and the grandparents would babysit until they returned in seven days. Instead, Mr. and Mrs. Parsons disappeared. Graham flew to London to begin a Birds concert tour, eventually in 10 on South Africa. Nancy simply vanished, neither parent informing their relatives of their whereabouts for three months. Upon a brief return to the States, Graham, Nancy now in tow, retrieved Polly. His stepfather was livid, but Graham shrugged it off. He was again on to bigger and better things. By then, Graham was no longer a member of the Birds. As soon as he hit London, he started socializing with Keith Richards, who was aware of the band's subsequent concert dates in then-apartheid South Africa. 
Graham Parsons was completely apolitical, but he suddenly decided that he could not accompany the band to one of the most notoriously segregated societies on the planet. Very sensitive about his reputation with the disapproving Keith Richards, he also was probably looking for an excuse to continue partying with one of the world's most famous rock and rollers. The other birds found out about his intentions when, packed and ready to leave for the airport and a jet to the African continent, they became aware of Graham's absence. A roadie was sent up to his room to ask Graham if he was ready. Parsons replied through the door that he wasn't going. He was staying in London. McGuinn and Hillman were neither surprised nor hesitant. They unpacked all of Graham's luggage, deposited it on the curb, and took off. Thus ended Graham Parsons' six-month career with the birds. His next stop was Keith Richards' mansion, an hour and a half south from London. There he jammed endlessly with the Stones guitarist and hung out with Keith and his notorious girlfriend, Anita Pollenberg. By the time Richards decided to head to Los Angeles to mix the upcoming Beggar's Banquet album, Graham was a full-fledged member of the entourage. Nancy Ross had essentially given up on the relationship and moved to Santa Barbara with Polly, Parsons visiting on occasions that were both infrequent and brief. He spent much of his time with his new best friend, escorted around town by Phil Kaufman, a man that Mick Jagger described as the Stones' executive nanny. Graham enticed Richards into visiting one of his favorite spots in California, Joshua Tree National Monument, now a national park. They would drag a couch to an appropriate spot on one of the numerous park rock formations, wait for the sun to set, consume various psychedelics, and then, as Graham once described it, hunt for UFOs. By late summer, 1968, Graham Parsons probably needed this kind of complete escape from reality. Sweetheart of the Rodeo was released to both negative reviews, confusion over a completely different bird sound, and poor record sales. Roger McGuinn dismissed the album as a wrong turn, engineered by Graham Parsons, and McGuinn emphasized that Graham's brief involvement with the group had concluded. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Graham Parsons. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books 20,000 Roads by David Meyer and Hickory Wind by Ben Fong Torres. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. For this episode especially, please check out the legendary Graham Parsons nudie suit mentioned during the show. If you've enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.